my name is Laurel Brockschmidt. I'm a covenant partner here at First Press. Um, happy Palm Sunday. We're so glad you're here. Today we continue our series in Mark, the Passover plan. As we study the first Palm Sunday, we see the work and word of God revealed the ridiculous glory of Jesus, never leaving people the same. Hear the word of the Lord. And this comes from Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? untying the colt. And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. Grass withers, flower fades, Amen. Thank you, Laurel. Good morning, church. It is a joy to worship with you. I carried my palm branch up here. Uh, somehow I got the Charlie Brown palm branch. So, uh, uh, Hosanna uh, in the highest. Hail to the Lord's anointed. What a gift it is to worship with you all this morning. We're going to study Mark 11, if you could keep your Bibles open. We're actually going to go to several different passages in Scripture. I'll give you a word of warning today. Uh, I realized this during the sermon discussion class. This is kind of a geek out moment for me. If you've ever taken your iPad to uh, one of the Apple geniuses or your car to a mechanic, they're very excited about how they can help fix your device or your car. And they start talking and talking about all the details and your eyes glass over and you're just like, I want my iPad fixed. I want my car fixed. That's all I care about. And you start thinking about lunch because they get so technical. That's kind of what I'm worried about with this passage. I got so excited in the preparation and the ways that I see how God has gone before us to reveal to us just the ridiculous glory of Jesus, the power in his, of his presence and the purpose that he has in Holy Week in his promises that are true for all of us today. And so if I begin to geek out a little too much and your eyes start glazing over, I'm just going to ask you to stay with me because we're going to go deep into the word. And my prayer is uh, that we will be able to go deep into your heart by the spirit of God uh, who uses the word of God. So let's, let's pray together as we approach the throne of God. Lord, we come to you boldly. We ask for your mercy. We thank you so much for the revelation of your word. I ask that you would remove all barriers 
of our hearts and our minds, all distractions. Uh, remove the, uh, the distractions of the one who speaks today, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to see the power of your presence. Lord, you are God, and you are with us, and that makes all the difference for all of our life. Lord, we do not want to just be inspired on this Palm Sunday. We ask to be truly transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to look at this story and move from familiarity, really, to formation. And I hope that we can look at the geography of the passage and see the glory of God uh, and the power of his promises. This is a redemptive history. This is a, a historical moment when Jesus came into Jerusalem, but it's also part of the beginning of the climax of God's eternal plan, his redemptive purposes for all the world, all creation, all for all time, for all who believe. And central to this revelation is the glory of Jesus Christ. And I, as I prepared for this, and oftentimes as I go through the story uh, of Palm Sunday and Holy Week in general, I identify with the crowds who are waving palm branches and celebrating the Lord's anointed from behind, coming from Bethany, from before in the East Gate. And as the week progresses, uh, they seem to fade away. I identify with that faith that gets excited in worship and worships Jesus with my lips, but then gradually as time go, goes on, uh, it doesn't sustain. There's something in my heart that uh, aligns with what the prophet Jeremiah says, that it is deceitful above all things. And that I misunderstand who Jesus really reveals himself to be. I think we all do. And that's part of the passage here. But not only that, my heart is deceitful in how great my need is for a redeemer and a savior. That is the real substance of Holy Week. And the crowds, we need to understand, they, they weren't distracted. It wasn't like uh, somebody who goes to the grandeur of a national park or sees some majestic uh, act of creation and, and they're just looking at their iPhones the whole time and, and they're, they're distracted, not like, oh, I, I totally missed the beauty of what's going on. That's not what the crowd's problem was. The problem for the crowds was that they were deceived, that they didn't understand fully who God is. In fact, they were driven more by the emotions and their circumstances and felt the weight of their reality and missed the weight of God's presence. God with them. Now, before we throw stones, we need to realize this is common for us and even common in Mark. It was Peter in Mark chapter 8 who uh, was uh, anticipatory. He was excited about a political Messiah. And Jesus had to rebuke him for setting his mind on things of this world. It was James and John, the apostles in chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, where they were uh, feeling the weight of the, of the, the political and powerful uh, national greatness that they longed for, and they missed the great one that was right before them, and Jesus had to teach them. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest is actually the servant of all. The emotions of the moment uh, as the crowd from Jerusalem was spilling out of the East Gate. They were there because of the Passover, allowing the tradition of the moment, the ceremony, to make them miss the true celebration. 
But then on the other hand, the crowd that was following Jesus coming from Bethany, they were elated and excited because Lazarus, one of their own, had been dead and brought to life. Resurrection uh, made them miss the, the true exaltation. They wanted another experience. Experience. Now, I have to ask the question, do we identify in, in, in a way that the weight of our circumstances can make us miss the weight of God's presence with us? I think it's true. I think we can get so weighed down by political fervor or cultural power or uh, a religious celebration or the emotions of an experience that we miss the reality that God is with us. When the disciples were in the boat with Jesus in Mark chapter four, the storm was raging around them. They were overcome with the weight of their circumstances. And it wasn't until the word of God spoke when Jesus woke and he spoke to the storm and the waves and it was still until they realized that God himself was in the boat. In the same way, I believe that the power of the word of God can speak to us through this familiar narrative and form us on levels that you long to be formed in. You long to truly know that Jesus was not just another man. Jesus is not just another ruler. Your depth of your being cries out for God himself. And that's exactly who Jesus is. So redemptive history takes uh, place in time and actual space. And God has been preparing this moment of Jesus' entry. Saturday evening, we've already talked about uh, in, in Mark 14 a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus was at Simon the leper's house, anointed by Mary for his week of burial. Lazarus was there with him at the table. The village was electric from God's mighty work. Sunday morning after that meal was a triumphal entry where Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Verse nine, it's clear that there's two different crowds. One that's following Jesus from Bethany and the other that is welcoming Jesus from the east gate of Jerusalem. They were there for the Passover, an annual celebration where pilgrims came from all over the country to celebrate the redemption that God had accomplished through bringing his people out of slavery into freedom. And, and a, the central to this narrative is something that we talked about last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this week, and that is the total sovereignty of Jesus. He tells his disciples to go to find a, a donkey, a beast that has never carried a burden, an unridden colt, and to take it, to untie it, and to speak to the master and tell him that the teacher needs it, and to take it in. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus is totally sovereign over this moment, and God, the Lord, the Father, is totally sovereign over all of history that has come in behind this. And we find refuge in God's sovereignty and his timing. But my burden is for the revelation of who Jesus is. And we want to encourage you to find refuge in God's sovereignty. If you want to go back and listen to last week, it's online. We've been very encouraged by the response but I want you to look at the geography. Look at verse one. It says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem for a while. They came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives. This is a very significant thing. Go down to verse 11 and you see more geography. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. Bethany and the Mount of Olives, 
It was outside the east gate of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus would have traveled an ancient trail to go through the east gate. Time and place matters. But what we see with all the crowds is they don't have the full revelation of God's word, the power that exposes the weightiness of his presence. And so they miss who Jesus really is and they forfeit the opportunity that they have to truly worship him. Now, David Wells is an author and when he talks about uh, the Western church and uh, their engagement with the weight of God's presence in Jesus Christ, he uses a funny term. He said that oftentimes Western Christians uh, uh, don't, tra- don't treat Jesus weighty enough. In fact, God is often weightless to us. Weightless, being carried around cast away by the wind and the sea and the storms of our circumstances, by our own desires for experiences and our own ceremony. The weightlessness of Jesus sends him off and all we feel is the weight of his presence. But when we talk about the glory of God in Jesus, we we necessarily need to understand that it is a weighty matter. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory, which we're going to look at a little bit, uh, kavod, actually means weight, it actually uh, is what's behind C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, and it means that which is heavier. And it talks particularly, hear this, about the penetrating, penetrating, profound and powerful presence of God. And this is exactly what John says in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, when he talks about the incarnation, God being with us, Jesus being among us. Jesus came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those some people receive him and some people don't, but all who believe in his name, he gives right to become children of God. Listen, born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God, Famous verse, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is it possible to be in the proximity of Jesus? Maybe to even be around his people and around him and to miss the full weight of his presence? Is it possible to be so familiar with Jesus that we lose the real power of the revelation of his glory? Yes. And this passage offers a helpful corrective as we understand more fully what God's word teaches us. We will discover the ridiculous glory of Jesus. Christ's powerful presence penetrates through the word. We're going to see this in three different ways. The first is that Jesus is truly the king of kings. Now, he comes from the Mount of Olives. We're going to, we're going to really celebrate the geography, the simple geography of this text. And that's important because there's a, a historic scene in the, uh, in, in the Old Testament where David is on, uh, is on the run from his own son. The dysfunctional family, Absalom, rises up to take over the throne. And David, in exile in his own country, he goes out to the Mount of Olives weeping and barefoot. He's a king who is on the run for his life. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 15, particularly verse 30. And he weeps and laments, and there's this longing of God's people for a true king. 
And we see in the, in the chanting of the crowd that not only is it, we see Jesus as David's greater son, the true king. We don't have time to unpack it fully here now, but he's also the fullness of the Davidic covenant. Look at the language that's being used by this. They went out, and, uh, sorry, verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed, two crowds, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is recognized as the fullness of the Davidic covenant. He is David's greater son. And they're singing Psalm 118, and this is a halal song. It's traditionally sung during Passover. And the people who filled Jerusalem and gathered, they would have sung Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And they particularly take this part to cry out to Jesus and to celebrate him coming in. It really is supplication and adoration. He, they're saying Hosanna, which means save now or save pray. It is the coming of the Father's kingdom through David. This is the one, right? And it's right to worship Jesus as king. But it's the wrong focus when we align Jesus as being a king only for political ambitions. We are deceived when we only see him as part of a ceremony and a celebration or only as a political Messiah that can bring deliverance over the Romans in this case. Our hearts are deceitful. And we need to see the fullness of Scripture and who he is. Psalm 118, we'll revisit in a second. But the second thing that we see, it's not just that Jesus is the king of kings, but Jesus is the glory of God. He is the presence of God with us. Now, I'm going to geek out on you. I need you to keep up with me. This is, to me, something God has been incubating in my soul for months when I was studying Ezekiel, I realized this. You see, the theme of God's story in redemptive history, it's his glory. The fullness of glory is Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle John just said that we read. In Ezekiel, when he is a prophet, he's a prophet of the Old Testament, but when he speaks to God's people, he speaks in two different kind of categories. The first is judgment. Judgment that comes from our sin. Judgment that comes from our idolatry. Judgment that comes from our wickedness. God is a holy God. He's a just God. And because he's loving, he must justly deal with sin. The second part of Ezekiel isn't about judgment. It's about restoration. And beginning in chapter 34, really really getting footing in chapter 36, Ezekiel starts to talk about the restoration that we have with the Lord through his new covenant mercy. And this passage highlights Jesus being the center of it. Are you with me? Can we geek out for a second? When, Jesus, when Ezekiel talks about judgment, he talks about the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, leaving the people of Israel. Now, you know the Shekinah glory of God if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all. You remember when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and they were led by the pillar of cloud and the fire by day, by night, right? You remember that? Shekinah glory of God. You remember when they built the tabernacle and the, and the, the glory fell and Moses' face, he went up on the top of the mountain and he met so with, with God and he glowed like a, a glow worm? 
That's the Shekinah glory of God. You remember when Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of God fell on it? That is God's presence with his people in the form of a cloud. And in Ezekiel, what's super fascinating is how he uses that to signify both the judgment and the restoration. And if we can grasp this, we are going to see a declaration of the glory of God and the restoration that's found him in ways that you long for. Stay with me. Ezekiel chapter 8, 30, uh, verses 3 to 4. Ezekiel clearly talks about the glory of God in the center of the temple, in the holy of holies. But as he addresses the idolatry, the wickedness that is in my heart, in your heart, in all of our hearts, he begins to speak about the judgment and justice of God. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 3 to 4, the glory, the, the presence of God, the glory cloud, it moves from the threshold into the courtyard. And in chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, the glory, it moves from the courtyard courtyard from the fringe to the east gate of Jerusalem. And then in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22 to 23, the glory cloud, it moves from the east gate out to the Mount of Olives. Get this church. The judgment of God is displayed in the removal of the presence of God from the people of God. Restoration of God is symbolized in the return of the glory of God to dwell among his people again. And you want to know how that is articulated in Ezekiel chapter 30, uh, 43? Look at this. Ezekiel is seeing a vision and he sees this. Then he led me to the gate, the gate that is facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. What does it sound like when two crowds are cheering loudly? <sighs> Many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The anticipation from the Old Testament prophets was that one day the Messiah would come embodying God himself as the glory of God through the east gate to the temple. This is the exact geographical trajectory of the triumphal entry. And it reveals to us the powerful and penetrating presence of God. God has come to dwell with his people again. But they missed it. Deceived. Above all else is our hearts. It was essential that the exaltation of Palm Sunday led to the humiliation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at the cross. It was essential that he returned back to Bethany and had to go through all of the horrific injustice and abuse, the mockery, the killing of Holy Week. It was essential that Jesus had to be betrayed and this is the third thing that we see about Christ's powerful presence is penetrated through his word. Jesus is the savior of all. The glory of God, he came and he took our judgment. He was cut off so that we could be accepted. That's what Holy Week's all about. This is amazing love. He was condemned for sin so that we could be free from our penalty of sin. He was bruised so that we could be healed. 
He was rejected, cast off, cast out so we could be brought in, accepted as children. He took our sin so that we could be made righteous. He died so that we can live. And when we see the fullness of Scripture, then we're able to really unpack this. Here's what I mean. We celebrate, and this is where Peter messed up in, in Mark 8, that Jesus is the Son of Man that would one day come in glory, the political Messiah that would overthrow every earthly power that is completely subject. That all authorities are subject to him. He's the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess in Philippians 2. He's the one that in Psalm 2 laughs at the nations that raise their hands. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, but he is also the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, who would bear the transgressions of the world because sin has to be atoned for. Yes, Jesus was the one that was the fullness of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that the Messiah would come humbly on a donkey. He is the one that, that rode the beast that had never been burdened into the city. But he did that to fulfill Ezekiel 13.1. We can't take part of Scripture and baptize Jesus as if it's all of him because he had to die so that, quote, a fountain of life can be opened up. He rode a beast that had not been burdened so that he could ride, come in and bear the burden of our sins, friends. He died so that we can live. Look at Psalm 118, the very psalm that all the crowds were singing, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to David's greater son, Hosanna, save us now. Jesus later applies this very passage in Mark chapter 12. He's the stone that the builders rejected that would eventually become the cornerstone. He's the son of the vineyard owner that was cast out and killed so that others could be brought in and have life that we can abide in Christ. You see, when we fully look at the word of God as it, who Jesus is, then we are transformed in understanding the glorious presence that's returned to Christ, that he loved us so much that he has detailed all of history, every detail, so that he could take our sin and judgment and pay the price that we owe on the cross and be restored ultimately and eternally into intimate relationship with God. That's how much he loves you. That should astound us. And we get to play a role in his glory story. Now, what does that look like? Can I give you two points of application? And I'm going to go through the doorway of two things that I know are significant issues in our congregation. I've been encouraged and empowered by how people have stepped out in faith from this church to lead teams as part of redeeming the crisis, of prayerfully discerning what are main pain points that people are feeling in our congregation, in our communities, and how can we be a part of the redemptive restoration of that? Two things that we've celebrated uh, through redeeming the crisis this past two weeks. One is financial health. All of us have pain points and fears coming uh, surrounding finances right now. Uh, the other is around mental health, and you heard Alex pray about that during the pastoral prayer. Um, I've been very encouraged by that. But these are two things in our hearts and our lives that are, are very real to us. And we're tempted to walk out of a, a, a Palm Sunday sermon and just move and, and just go about business as normal. But the New Testament writers are not going to let you get away with that. And I want to give you two examples of, of how understanding the powerful uh, presence of God and allowing it to penetrate your life touches you on your most practical areas. It's amazing to me how gracious God is. First, anxiety. 
Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 5b to 7, uh, Paul writes this, The Lord is at hand, so don't be anxious about anything but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <laughs> How many of us want that? I want the peace of God to guard my heart in Christ Jesus and my mind. I don't want to be anxious about anything. I don't want to be anxious about the unknowns of my future, the uncertainties of my present. I don't want to be anxious about all the news that I watch. I don't want to be anxious. Well, if you're like me, you struggle with anxiety. And the solution in the New Testament is never for you and I to just try harder. Just try harder not to be anxious. Come on, you can do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Let's just not be anxious. It's not working. Why is this not working? Because the beginning. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. His presence is the power that fills the promise. And if it doesn't penetrate you, then you will never experience the freedom and the power of the gospel. I can only not be anxious because I allow the weight of God's presence to be more significant than the weight of my circumstances, my unanswered questions, my fears, my failures. That's it. I can only cast my cares upon him if I know he's near and he'll take them. Well, what about your finances? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 to 7. The author writes, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> keep your life free from the love of money. That is so easy, isn't it? When Jesus teaches about money and the New Testament writers unpack things about money, it's hard teaching. And in Matthew 6, Jesus goes right to the heart of the hard teaching. When he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. For where your heart is, there your treasure is also. <laughs> and Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6 with the explicit command to keep your life free from the love of money. Yeah. How do we do that? How do I love Jesus and his promises more than the debt that I need to pay off? How do I love Jesus and his promises more than the tuition that I've got to figure out how to pay for? How do I love Jesus and his promises more than the business deal I've got to close or the uh, concerns that I have about finances with people in my family or my salary and the uncertainty of my job? Is it just me trying harder? No. Ah, don't have it. No. The power of the prescription is the promise of his presence. Look at what he says in Hebrews. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, the New Testament writers center transformation of the gospel on our understanding of the restored and glorious presence of God. That God himself has come to be with you, that God himself has 
come from heaven, that God himself took the nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that God himself, though he was rich, he became poor for your sake so that we could become rich in grace and love. God himself has come more than king of kings. He is savior of all. And he longs for us to acknowledge the idolatry, the evil, and the wickedness of our souls that has too often prioritized the weight of our circumstances and the idols of our heart and rejected the unbelievable and ridiculous love of God for you. And Palm Sunday says, now's the invitation to stop. Drop your idols. Turn from your wicked ways. Don't allow your heart to be deceived any longer, but come. Come to the glorious presence of Jesus who invites you to have all your sin washed away. We can be grounded in the grace of God, glowing with gratitude and generosity, content with what we have, and growing in the gospel. That is a powerful invitation. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your unbelievable mercy. Thank you that you have come as king, but you came as servant. Thank you that while you rule over all, you died for the sins of all who believe. Lord, I know that I've got friends in here today that are struggling with me to believe. Would you help us with our unbelief? And Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, that you would not allow us to walk out of this place the same. Lord, would you help us to go deeper in the power of your word, that your work might transform us on a deeper level. We love you, and we pray all this in your name. All God's people said, amen.